Welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. We started this podcast to bring our community together with stories of life and success, some ups and downs, but always interesting and informative. There is no shortage of these stories, and we have just scratched the surface. And we will continue to bring you all the twists and turns that make up our community and the people who live here. My name is Marty Lockman, and today's episode is brought to you with the generous support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 70 years. AT&T, who reminds us, it can wait. Please don't drive distracted. And Back Nine Greens, whose work is known worldwide. Remember that golf art starts with Back Nine Greens. Our guest for this episode is Gary Truitt, who along with his wife Kay have been members since 1998. Gary's life has definitely had some twists and turns with a varied business career with great success and a personal life that has included great personal relationships and amazing experiences. Gary, I appreciate you joining me today. And please start your story, where it all began, in Kansas City, Missouri. Hi, Marty. Thank you for having me. This is a great pleasure for me. I didn't think it would be, actually. I thought I was very apprehensive, as I told you, because I thought I'd be boring. But after reflecting and remembering on my life, I became kind of excited about my life. I enjoyed it. You know, I've done a lot of things, not to any great gestalt, maybe, but I've been with a lot of people, and I've had lived in a lot of places thanks to jobs and circumstances. And I, I guess I'd like to call what I'm going to say today, it's all about people, places, and things. I've been really lucky. I've learned a lot by the people I've been with. Contrary to what some people think, I do listen a lot. And I, I've learned from those people, both good and bad. Uh, one of the things I'd like to bring to attention, which I remembered going through this, is uh, my majors, I was economics and a history major, which coincidentally worked very well together. But because of that, listening to my family, maybe 15 years ago, I was introduced to a book, which is a book of questions and with no answers, and which you interview family members and, or people of interest. My history curriculum, I, you know, I was taught a lot. My grandparents were born in 1897, in 1895. They were great people, and I knew them, but I never knew what they did or what they said. And my parents, who were great parents, but I never really got to know them as much as I got to know my curriculum in history. And there's a book called, and I think you can still get it on Amazon, it's an interview with your family. I would recommend anybody who missed having a deep conversation with their family, with their relatives, uh, buy the book and do it for your kids. And because it's fascinating and you get a chance to, to lay your legacy down uh, and so that they can have one from their own and for their own children. Well, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. I was born in uh, 1945. You know, my dad was uh, a World War II pilot in, in the Navy. He, he wasn't flying then. He was actually stationed in uh, St. Louis. 
And I, I was just hoping that uh, he wasn't discharged from the service yet, but I was just hoping that he was home when I was conceived because I, I, I couldn't make the dates work over. But uh, I have certainly set of parents who were married for 55 years, uh, one brother younger and one sister older. And I had four grandparents growing up. My, I had my maternal grandparents were from born in Oklahoma Territory in 1897. And I'll say a little bit about them because I learned a lot about them. And I'm going to repeat a lot of things that I learned from people today, and I hope that's okay with you. Absolutely. Uh, but then my my father's, my his parents his were my grandfather and grandmother. My grandmother lived with us. My grandfather was a, a barnstorming baseball player. We don't know too much about him, and he didn't stay home much, I don't think. We saw him every once in a while, but he was nice, but I, I can't remember him as a grandparent. But he certainly raised a whole bunch of, or somebody raised a whole bunch of really good kids because my dad had a good family. I don't even know what position he played because my grandmother wouldn't talk to him about him. So just one of those. It might have been a sore <laughs> subject because he was gone so much. Or a good subject. I'm not sure That's which. A, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good point. My dad was a businessman. My mother was a early feminist, I think, because she started and owned a couple of dress stores in Kansas City. They were high-end boutiques. And this was back in the 60s. You know, women just didn't start their own business back then. It was old traditional style. But she was outspoken. That's where I get mine from. And successful. My dad was a banker by profession, but he gave a, his, a first loan to several important people. One of them was a guy by the name of Ewing Kaufman. And Ewing Kaufman got a $5,000 loan from my father. Now, they were next-door neighbors then to start a company he called Marion Laboratories, which is named after his daughter, Marion Sue Lab, uh, Kaufman. And he started making Oscal in his basement, and which is a bone supplement of sorts, I guess. And I know his son, Larry, and I were best friends. And, and so we would go down there and toss the pool, pills around all the time. Uh, but Marion Laboratories became a very prominent and successful company and allowed Ewing at one point to buy the – or not to buy it, but to start the Kansas City Royals as the original franchise, the American League. Well, interesting enough, when he did that, the American League told him that he was going to have to, to uh, pay a $2 million – fee, application fee, to the American League to, to join the league. And so the only way he could do that from his cash situation was to take the company public. And so he coerced my dad to join him as the executive vice president of Marine Laboratories and the executive vice president of the Kansas City Royals if they got the franchise. Well, they got the franchise, and dad had left the bank and was working at Marion. And but mostly it was the startup of the stadiums and the team. Uh, interesting Gary, enough, Gary. Let me ask yeah. you a question because for a banker, yeah, this is a pretty big leap of faith for a guy to leave his job. Yeah. He's doing very very well at his job. Tell me anything about that that you either were told well, about or I, I tell you what I can tell you. The last year of my father's active duty record for World War II, he was at Scott Air Force Base in St. Louis. And he managed a U.S. Navy baseball team who had mostly major leaguers on it. So he was a baseball nut. I guess that came from my grandfather, too. I don't know. He was an entrepreneur, and so it was easy for him to make the transition. Now, that doesn't mean it's not scary, because I'm sure it was. I, I would know. He never shared that with me. But 
he just loved baseball. And he was, they were pretty sure, when you get that far, you're pretty sure you're going to get the franchise. So there was going to be something there. So that's how he got there. I'll tell you what was interesting about them. All of our parents, I guess, give us the basis of life and what we are and what we're going to be. And my, my parents taught me, number one, responsibilities and how to handle that. They also taught me how to be independent. I've had no problem being that. And, and they were independent by themselves. Uh, they, they taught me the sense of honesty and how to seek out opportunity. And I think that's where the entrepreneurial spirit came from. It came from me, came from my brother. And actually, it's going through to my daughters, which I'll speak about in a little bit. And they also taught me to be yourself. Now, sometimes that doesn't work very well for me because I, I don't have very much of a screen. I guess one of the most important things to me that they taught me was compassion and forgiveness of other people and forgiveness of myself, too, because I, I need that a lot. Uh, so that was the family background. I, oh, also, they taught me good manners. I used those mostly. I try to anyway. That's my early life from 1945 in, into high school. Uh, I didn't have much of a high school career. I'm not a great academic. You know, I, I'm an experiential learner, and I'm not a visual learner, and I'm not a study learner. Uh, so I didn't, I went to school, of course, but I, yeah, it wasn't my place of pleasure. I was ne never a great student. But when after I got out of high school, I went to college, I started, had half a semester, or a semester, at Emporia State College, and I thought, well, this isn't big enough ball field for me. So I, then I transferred to the big ball field in Manhattan, Kansas, to Kansas State University. Well, in Kansas, you really don't know Arizona State or Arizona or Southern Cal or anybody exists out there. You know, you're, we're kind of just stuck. I went to college there. Never a great student there. They didn't like me that much. They liked me later when I gave them a lot of money. But, but I did become a first-rate bridge player. And 19, 19 uh, I think it was 1965, I played more hands of bridge in the student union than any other student. And so that was my notoriety for that. One of the things I did know that was going to factor into my life, and it factored in prominently, was all during college, and actually all during, from the time I was 13 years old, I had a job. And me and my parents were decidedly middle, upper middle class, and, and so I didn't have to work, but it was a good way to get out of the house and have my own money and make my own decisions. But I had a job in, in uh, Manhattan, and obviously became a bar manager for a place called J.D.'s Pizza. It was a pizza place, dance place, and, and bar, and 3-2 beer. I mean, because you could drink at 18 in Kansas at that time. That re really became an important resume ingredient later. I'll tell you what I learned in, in Manhattan. I learned to reject the status quo and to seek something else if it didn't fit me. I embraced change. I, you know, a lot of people don't like change. I love change. I just think change keeps things moving and going and and so I liked that, and I, consequently, I learned to seek out something new all the time. And I like, to me, news exciting, and news where the growth is most of the time. One sidebar that people probably aren't aware of is that my sophomore year, that summer, I worked for a construction company in Kansas City, and I was, I was carrying concrete forms to, to make housing basements and private homes. And you carry them on your back. They're big. They're, they weigh about 105 pounds. And I got sick one day, and they, after about a week, they took me to the hospital, and I had polio. And of all things, now, never went muscular. It was just a virus. It was just like the, the virus of today. 
My mother had polio in 1956, and she had a serious bout of polio, so she, she survived it. But consequently, when the salt vaccine came out, which I think was 57 or 58, we got a booster shot about every six months because it'd be damned if, if, if we were going to get it. But we got this, but I still had it, and I got the virus. And, I, and they say it's not hereditary, but uh, there's got to be something in it that, that, because it's so unusual. How did it impact you, Gary? Uh, it just made me sick for the summer. I just didn't get to party. Okay. <laughs> but I had no residual But like a, no flu, muscular, a no. flu kind of thing? No. no pare- it just flew. It was okay. a real serious gotcha. flu. Gotcha. I mean, I wasn't in an iron lung or any of that stuff, and I could always breathe. Uh, I, I did lose a lot of motion in my legs for, you know, weeks, but nothing serious. I was in the hospital, I think, eight weeks. But I was just sick. Gary, how could you compare polio? Because when we look back on polio, we go, oh, my God, this must have been just the worst news you could have possibly had. And now we're going through this thing now. Is there any comparisons that you see? You know, I was 19 then. I was was probably still too young to be reflective and make the comparison. I mean, I was worried about myself, but but when you see the pictures of the polio kids then, and you saw saw whole wards of iron lungs. You know, I never had saw any of that because basically polio had been eradicated by the time I had it. It doesn't make me any more or less aware. I'm, you know, I don't like this COVID-19 stuff when we got our shots, but you get, you got to be worried because it does whatever virus it is, it'll make you really sick. And I was sick. My college career was unremarkable. They said, well, Gary, you, you almost got a four point one oh one oh one oh one oh. I said, oh, really? <laughs> but anyway, I got out. And about two weeks after I got out, which is in 67, I got the dreaded draft letter. The draft letter came and said, your friends and neighbors have asked asked for you. I went down and I enlisted in the Army because Kansas State is a land-grant college, so they they have a ROTC program. But I dropped out. I didn't want to wear a uniform on campus. ROTC. Yeah, ROTC. So I dropped out of that, and I didn't want to be an enlisted man, so I went down, and Navy didn't have an ROTC or an officer's program for uh, anybody but ROTC students or academy. And same with the Air Force, but the Army did. They had OCS. So I went down and enlisted in the Army. I remember going home, and I I wasn't bothered by it because I knew I was going to go one way or another. I went home, and I told my dad. I said, Dad, I enlisted today. And he knew it was coming up. He says, oh, great. When do you go to the Great Lakes or San Diego? I said, oh, Dad, I'm going to Fort Leonard Wood. Well, he was a 26-year Navy guy. And he was the CEO of Latha Naval Air Station for many years. <laughs> he said, you, Army? <laughs> and which was just unbeknownst to him. But as it came out, he, he was proud that we enlisted. My brother did about the same thing, too. The Army was really my learning pyramid to become an adult. It taught me more about myself. It taught me more about life. It taught me more about getting along with people. It taught me more about courage uh, than anything uh, the, any place else. I went to Fort Leonard Wood for basic training, Fort Ord, California, for uh, AIT, Advanced Infantry Training. What you'd like to know there is that I was on re- waiting for orders for OCS at Fort Benning, Georgia, the infantry school, and for about eight weeks at Fort Ord, and we could go out and play pebble for $12 a round. So that was pretty good. And we had two good golf courses at, at uh at Fort Ord, but the generals were generally on him, so we didn't get to play much. But so I, I did, I did OCS. That was fine. Went to jump school, 
And then we got our orders out of OCS, and I, I was assigned. And why this is important is because it started my business career. I was assigned, two of us, alphabetical T's in the alphabet, only two T's in the, in the company, were assigned to Germany. Everybody else was going to Nam or someplace. And this was infantry. This was serious. So we went to Germany. I went to Erlangen, Germany, uh, 3rd Battalion, 51st Infantry, uh, 4th Armor Division, and I was a second lieutenant platoon leader. And there weren't very many platoon leaders, so we kind of did executive officer duties for the company too. I was there about six weeks, and my commanding officer, Colonel John Cobb, called me in, and he said, Truett, I see here that you ran a big bar. I, this is where J.D.'s Pizza in Manhattan became important. I said, well, Colonel Cobb, I, you know, I was a night manager there, and I was really trying to pick up girls more, and I was trying to run a bar. But um, he said, uh, we're having a little problem in the Army right now with the uh, major club scandal. This is going to enter in later, more important in my life. And he said, um, I have three ways I can go here. I can fire the current club manager, which I just did. Uh, I can appoint one, or I can have the U.S. Army Washington appoint one. I'm selecting you. Well, Colonel Cobb was from Pittsburgh, Kansas. He had a daughter who was going to be single for a long time for obvious reasons. He, I think he had eyes that I was going to date his daughter and perhaps be a son-in-law. He liked me, by the way. I said, you're my new club officer. I said, well, what's that mean? You know, this is, it's a big business, by the way. So I had an NCO club, enlisted men's club, and an officer's club. Uh, that was the start of my business career. That's where I learned the f- rules about business. The Army was kind enough to help me. They sent me back to Fort Lee, Virginia to go to school for a limited period of time. And also from there, I went up to Cornell in Ithaca, New York, and they have a, ho- they're a great hotel and restaurant school. So I went up there, did that deal. And it was more about, up there, it was more about forensic restaurant accounting uh, than anything else. Uh, it wasn't the service aspects of it. And I came back, and I was a club officer. Well, that was, it was big kicks. And I had great managers, I had old NCOs who had been there a long time. They were involved with the club scandal, thank God. And so I didn't have to worry about too much, and they told me when to shut up and keep my nose clean. And, and uh, I did that for a couple of years. Explain to me, Gary, for those who don't know, what was the club scandal? What, oh, what had uh, taken place? There's a sergeant major of the Army. His name was Wolcott. And he and a cadre of Vincios were shaking down the purveyors of whiskey and beer around, around the world, the American servicemen clubs around the world. And it was, it was a multi-million-dollar deal. It was big. We didn't have any, fortunately, at, at where I was stationed, Erlangen. But uh, after a couple of years... I was going along just glamorous. You know, I was pretty happy because I wasn't going to Nob. And I was an infantry, airborne infantry officer. I thought, well, that's pretty good. I don't want to go to Nob anymore. And all of a sudden, I, one day I got a call. Two guys came in, in uniform. There, one was a major, one was a lieutenant colonel. And they said, Lieutenant Truett? Oh, God, what have I done now? And I said, yes, sir. He said, we need to talk to you. They were military intelligence people. Their mission was to put together a cadre of people to go to Vietnam to investigate the club scandal in Nam. Well, I'd been through the forensic steal from accounting. 
I, I, I knew enough about accounting, and I knew the club systems for sure. And so I was on my way to Vietnam. And uh, I only spent 34 days there. It was all, I'm, I'm not even sure I'm supposed to talk about it anymore. It's, it's no big deal, but it was all top secret. And we found just millions of dollars that had been funneled into people's pockets. And from Falstaff and Carlin and Budweiser and Schlitz and all these, and liquor suppliers from the, the guys in Canada from Seagram's and all those. And these guys were just draining it. And they were, they were wealthy. Well, mo- I think most of them served time. And we got some money back, but not all of it, because they'd spent a lot of it. But there is where I learned about the, the, the sacredness of being honest in business, because eventually it's going to end up. And uh, it, it was a hell of a lesson for me. And I learned around all these people who were so smart about this. And I was, I was, then I was a first lieutenant. So it was very helpful for me to just be around it. Uh, the discipline that they gave me, uh, the sacrifice and the respect I, I, I gained from around others uh, was very instrumental, I thought, in my growth prospects. So, but the other thing I learned, learned was that the, the importance of, of innovation to keep a business going. Now, clubs, EM clubs and NCO clubs are not, not for profit clubs, they can, they can lose as much money as they want. Officers' clubs are not that way. You're supposed to break even. And but but the army has very strict margins of what you you can make you have to make seventy percent of the bar and I think twenty five percent this may not be right anymore twenty five percent at mess and that, that's hard to do and the only way we could do it in the officers club and the gen, generals wanted things their way but the only way we could do it was innovate and have events it's just like this club you know they don't make it on the on the restaurants they they make it on the special events which makes the last year particularly tougher a club like this. But uh, so that taught me the value of innovation, how to, how to stay on top and, and how to strategize uh, what you ought to be able to do with the company. I came back after Vietnam. I went back to Germany and I finished my time. I was, I was uh, rifted out at, in New Jersey. I came back. I returned from the Army in 1970. I was a captain then. I was just hanging around. I thought, well, I'll go back. And I, I tried to go back to the graduate school at Rockers University in which is a Jesuit university in Kansas City. Well, that worked about as well that time as it did the first time. I just wasn't meant to be a student. I was hanging out, and I I knew I was going to have to get a job. My dad says, and he he didn't hound me, but he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I'm going to get a job. And he said, okay. And I said, well, right now you're not doing anything. And the Royals were playing. They had adopted Satchel Paige, who was one of the finest pitchers maybe ever in baseball. Uh, mostly for for the black uh, and Negro uh, teams, but he also played with the Cleveland Indians, and he played with one other team. He played with Kansas City Athletics, St. Louis Browns. St. Louis Browns. Thank you. Yeah, and he said, "Well, your job until you have something to do is every home game." And the Royals had adopted Satchel as a as a care case, and they gave him a home, and they gave him substance, and and took him to every baseball game. My job was to spend all summer sitting with Satchel Paige and, and doing what he wanted to do. I was his gopher. I said, whoa, that's great. You know, and he was fascinating. He was maybe as smart a baseball. I was around a lot of baseball people because of my dad. He was as good a baseball person as I've ever been around. And we'd sit up there, and he'd tell stories. He'd tell stories about, 
cool Papa Bell, who was the guy who said, well, turn off the lights, you'd get in bed faster, and the lights would go out. And Buck Buchanan, who was a Kansas City native, who, who was, was a prize hero in Kansas City, every story he told was hilarious. But most importantly, every, his knowledge of baseball was incredible. He had sat there and said, this needs to be a curveball because. He always said because. He was almost generally right. When he wasn't right, it was either a hit or a home run or something like that. But he, that, was a, that was a real kick. Well, Dad had formed a, or an organization called the Royal Lancers. And the Royal Lancers were, were a group of businessmen in Kansas City who sold season tickets. And they had to sell, I don't know, 20 tickets a deal. And they had their own restaurant in the stadium and they wore blue coats like the master's coats and, and they got privileges and they went to spring training with the team and the team paid for it. We were doing all that. One night they were having a meeting. These guys, these are pretty boisterous members. And they were businessmen. A guy by the name of Chuck Howard was a member and he was a divisional sales manager for the Joseph Schlitz Brain Company in Kansas City. He had Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, some of Iowa. He was following my dad home. They were both, I'm sure, drinking too much. And Chuck Howard rear-ended on the way home down Brooklyn Avenue, where the stadium was, rear-ended my dad. Now, neither one of them were hurt, but it was, they really hit him hard. The car was undrivable. And so they just left the car there, and Chuck drew, drove, his car was, was drivable, drove my dad home. <laughs> I think I went out the next week for an interview, and I think I know why he got the job. Because <laughs> he hit him with a company car. <laughs> Anyway, I went to Slits. I didn't know what it did. I was a district sales manager trainee. My first district after about 12 weeks of training was in Reno, Nevada, which I've gone back to now. And that was in 1971. And I lived in Reno. I was a single guy. I lived actually in Tahoe. I was there about a year. We had no market share up there. But I used innovation to get, you know, any case of beer you sold was more than we sold last year. So I used innovation to up our share of market a little bit and, and have some, make some progress. We did that. Uh, but one kind of unique story, when the old district manager was showing me around, uh, we were, he was taking me around to meet all the distributors. And one of the distributors was in Winnemucca, Nevada, which is north of Reno, up the northern part of the state. We were driving up there in the evening, and we were going to stay up there that night. And we go through a town called Lovelock, Nevada. You've probably never heard of it. That's the name of it. So we pull in Lovelock, we pull in, and there's a cul-de-sac there. It's got these little buildings around. It's like little huts. They're a little bigger than huts. And I said, his name, this guy's name was Reuben Salas. I said, Reuben, what's this? He says, well, you just have to come in and find out. So I go in there. Well, legal prostitution is legal <laughs> in uh, Nevada. And Reuben, they were all, we sold seven-ounce bottles and so all these places sold seven-ounce bottles. And we were the only brewery that did it. So Reuben knew all these places, but he spent about 30 minutes saying goodbye, which I felt unusual. I said, well, this beer business is a little different than I thought it was going to be. He said, well, yeah, have, have, have that. I said, no, I don't think so. And, uh, but I drink seven-ounce bottles. And anyway, so that was my introduction to Nevada. And we did the whole thing. Then I, was, I did pretty well. I had a great boss in San Francisco. This is how naive a Kansas kid is. I was promoted to a district manager, a larger district in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Now, this is important because I met my wife there. So that was in 19, 
73. Kay and I had a great relationship. We were living together. And I got a call one day and said, you're going to be promoted to Chicago, which Chicago was our biggest sales district. So that was a real, that was a real plus for me. And I asked Kay, I said, are we going to go with me? She says, not unless we get married. I said, well, we're not going to get married. She said, no, I'm not going. I said, okay. I was taking the district manager around, although I didn't have Lovelock to take him to, around the state <laughs> of Michigan, some distributors. So it was Kalamazoo and Jackson, wherever Kellogg's is, on the lakeside. We were doing this whole thing, and I get back in, and I, I can't hardly get the door open in my apartment. Tucked my head in there, and I, well, here's all Kay's furniture in my apartment. And so she wasn't there, so I called her. I said, well, I, I guess you changed your mind. <laughs> she said, yeah. And so we didn't get married then, but we got married about five months later in, in Chicago. There's where I, I learned another great lesson in business. That's to be yourself and, and to be honest. At that time, this is 1974, Schlitz was going, it just started going through some tough times. Schlitz was a great company. And they excelled at making money. They had a ton of money. And it was all mostly owned by the E-Line family, uh, which is U-I-H-L-E-I-N. The original Mr. E-Line had married the widow Schlitz after he died on a boat coming across from England or something. And uh, so it was a smart, he was the accountant. It was a smart move on his part. But uh, they were making money. But they, one of their chemists developed, uh, which was uh, the, Killed the company eventually, but uh, uh, accelerated brewing process. And so they could brew beer faster, and they could brew it about 20% faster. Where 20% of capacity is a great efficiency if you can do it. Well, they did it, and the beer tasted okay. The problem is it left little uh, flakes in the beer of protein. And people were starting to notice that. Well, they had they, they couldn't understand whether sales were down. They had this district manager's meeting in Chicago. And I was the host district manager. And they said, okay, we're, everything's off. Everything's open. We're, no, no problems here. So say what you want to say and tell us why and how we can improve it. So I thought, well, being the host, I'll stand up and open my mouth up first with a mistake. And I did. And I said, well, you know, you're just putting out a crappy product. I said, people see the flakes in their beer. They don't want crackers in their beer. They want a beer. And there was a guy by the name of Abe Gustin there. And Abe Gustin was one of the two founders of uh, Applebee's eventually. But he was the director of sales up in Milwaukee. And so he went after we went through this whole process, and everybody knew it was, it was, that's what was happening. And we went up there, and Abe went to the, to the vice president of sales, Tom Rupus, and said, we've got to fire this guy. Well, I had a couple of angels someplace because they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't fire me. They didn't fire me. And eventually they fired Abe. But, uh, <laughs> and not because of that, but for some other reason, I guess. But uh, so uh, not six months later, I was promoted in Milwaukee in the, in the marketing deal. And that's where I started getting into marketing. And then I started making advertising up there. And, and became, I wasn't fluent in advertising at all. And then I was promoted to the brand director of Schlitz Malt Liquor. Now, the th thing famous about Schlitz Malt Liquor is we invented the crashing bull. If you remember the TV commercials, and that was a, that was a Leo Burnett godson uh, who believed in one characters and, and singular characters, but it was great. And so that worked out pretty well. Eventually, the company continued to slide the Schlitz brand because that was the big brand. We brought out Schlitz Light. That helped. We had Old Milwaukee Beer, which is a big deal. That was doing, doing all right. But 
we said, you know, the only way out of this, and we needed a premium beer, is we got to go by Stroh Brewing Company in Detroit. Well, they were negotiating for, and I was on the negotiating committee for Stroh, and there was a guy by the name of Roger Friedholm who was the, the uh, president of Stroh. Not Stroh family, but he was smart. And he looked at Schlitz's balance sheet, and our balance sheet was just stuffed with cash. I mean, there was so much cash. He figured out that he could buy Schlitz, Stroh was a much smaller brewery. They could buy Schlitz with Schlitz's money. So we woke up one Monday morning, and there was an unfriendly tender offer in the Wall Street Journal, and by Tuesday, we were done. We were sold. Well, during the negotiations, Schlitz was really good and, and with contracts and, and taking care of their people. And, and they had a really well-educated workforce and, and executives. So I had a contract for 18 months, so I wasn't too worried about eating. So I went over to Detroit and looked around and said, you know, I don't, nothing, like, sorry, Detroit people, but I didn't want to live in Detroit. And fortunately, I had an old boss from Schlitz who was the executive vice president of Coors. And he called me. I says, what's going on back there? And he told him. He said, do you want to come out here? I said, what? can I be there by Wednesday? <laughs> and this was on Monday. And he said, no, you can come tomorrow. And so I went out there. He made me an offer. And Schlitz, of course, was re regressing at that point in time because Anheuser-Busch was becoming so aggressive. So we went through the deal. The only trouble was that all the, the Coors culture, you have to take a lie detector test. You know, I'm not a big liar, and I don't, I don't steal. But you never know. You know, you, you take little things here and there, and you, I said, what the heck? Well, I passed it. That was good. <laughs> and I became their director of new business development, which that meant at the time, became more expansive later, that meant at the time that they were sold in 20 states, and the last expansion they'd done statewide had failed, and which was half of Texas, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. And they needed to get to the next 30 states, mostly because of advertising efficiency on network TV. So, but they needed the volume also. So I had to develop a plan to, to expand them into 30 new states. We had to do it in two and a half years, which is pretty quick, and build a brewery at the same time in Charlottesville, Virginia. So we got it done, worked like magic. They went from, I think, the first year of expansion, they went from like a three and a half million. This is a big company uh, revenue-wise. They went from like $3 million to $180 million in profit or something like that. So it really worked well. I was happy. They were satisfied. But this was a time, too, Gary, where you've really transitioned again in your professional life. Oh, you're not, I had to. You're not, like, you're not a salesperson. You're not running it, which is nothing wrong with that. And it was very successful for you. Now you're into branding. You're into marketing. You're into all the things that to sell it is one thing, but you have to get name awareness out there. That's a great comment, and you're right. My next job... With them, they made me a vice president, or promoted me to vice president. I was under, you know, I was like 37 or 38, so that was pretty good. They only had seven, or 16, I was 17th vice president. And the only trouble I had with that was, Coors, Peter Coors called me and said, Gary, so we want to promote you, but none of our vice presidents smoke. I was a smoker. I said, you mean that's what's in my way? He said, well, I don't smoke anymore, Peter. He said, really? <laughs> and I didn't. I never smoked again. I smoke cigars now, you know that, but but never smoked cigarettes cigarettes again. Well, the first 
corporate meeting we had was at the uh, Broadmoor in Colorado Springs. And we, all the vice presidents were there, and everybody was meeting. We took a break. I went up to talk to my boss, Bob Reckles, and Peter Coors. And I looked around, and all these other 16 vice presidents were gone. I said, well, they just left me. I, and I said, what the hell is this? So I went out trying to find them. They were in a courtyard smoking. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. No. I said, that's great. Yeah, Gary, we've talked a little bit personally about this. Explain the the hierarchy of the beer business at that time. I mean, here you've really changed Coors' footprint. When we were started having our troubles with 1974, Anheuser-Busch was the leader, but Schlitz was only a million barrels behind it in terms of total volume. So, so And after that, Anheuser-Busch just ran away and got up to, I think, 50% share of the market. Doesn't have it now, but still high. We were second for a while. And then Miller was doing okay because they had Miller Lite. Now, that was a great innovation in the beer business. That was... And everybody else said, well, that's not going to work. And a great Wait. advertising campaign. Yeah, they did have a great correctly. advertising campaign. Yeah. But, but it was pretty good beer. For, and, but it was a great concept. And it's just so good for the times because uh, people were, you know, they're conscious, more conscious of their weight and health. And not that beer is ever going to be healthy, but it's, it's not that bad for you. I think Coors was fifth then. And I think in two years, it could have been fourth, but Anheuser-Busch never changed. He's iconic as a business manager, August the 3rd. He never, never put, took his foot off the gas with that company. Now, it's not owned by the Bush family anymore, which is too bad, in my opinion. Cause they're, and they're not doing as well. But they're doing all right still, but not, not like when Bush was there. He, he was just the best. And you just watched him and learned. You, you couldn't help it. That was the thing. Well, during this business expansion, business film, I still, then I took on international business. And we, we structured a, a deal with Molson in Canada which now Molson Coors has merged in Canada and the U.S. since the Molson Coors Brewing Company. Uh, so that had, you know, that, that was never our, my vision. I mean, I could never see that coming. And then we went to Japan, did a deal with Asahi, was semi-total trading group, did a deal with Asahi, and they brewed it over there, which is for the Coors family to do that was really unusual. But they, they built breweries to sustain it, so that was good. And then we went to China, and try to deal with deal with the Chinese. But 19, that was just 1986 or 7. China had no money. So we, we reached a deal. And they said, well, they reached a deal. They said, here's our deal. You put up all the money, and you own 49% of the business, and we own 51% of the business. I said, I don't think my board's going to buy that. <laughs> and so we left, and that was, it never went any further than that. And we, then we had a deal with some little brewers in, in Europe. Um, but that was all good. And during that time, because uh, I know you're in media, during that time, I got to start making lots of commercials. My advent was in with uh, Schlitz Malt Liquor, but then we made all the Coors commercials for introduction, which is Mark Harmon. They're unique commercials just for expansion. And so that was, a, that was a great opportunity for me. I got a call one day from my brother. Now, this time I was vice president of sales <laughs> for the brewery. I went from Vice President of International Marketing and Business Development, which is new products, to Vice President of Sales, which is a much bigger job. Yeah, because we had 700 wholesalers, and they had 26,000 salesmen, and, and I thought, well, this is pretty cool. But I also knew that the first person to go in times of strife was the sales manager. So I got a call from my brother, 
This was in 1987. He said, come back to Kansas City for the weekend. He was in Kansas City. And so I said, why? He said, I want you to look at a business. I said, a live one? I said, no, we're going to start one. I said, we are. And uh, so I went back there. Now, as a vice president of Coors, I was living, I had my own plane. I had a jet. And, uh, or at my disposal, it wasn't mine. We were living pretty good, we thought, and at a young age and doing fine, had a good reputation. And so I went back to Kansas City. Mark sat down and he said, okay, this is a, this is a direct marketing company, and we're going to call it National Seminars, and we're going to sell business training or seminars. I said, really? And so I went through the metrics with me. He's a financial guy. He's a banker. And he went through the metrics, and I said, well, how are we going to do all this? And he said, well, this is how it's being done right now, but that's not the way we have to do it. I thought, God, that's great. I like this. So I went home, and I told Kay, and she made me promise that we wouldn't leave Denver because she loved Denver, and she, the kids were happy. And I said, we're leaving. Well, the thud you heard was a shoe going over my head, I think. She said, we are? I said, are you nuts? I said, no, this is going to be a great this is going to be a great thing. Well, it turned out to be a great thing. And so two weeks, I went in to see Peter Coors. I said, Peter, I'm resigning. He says, Gary, you can't resign. I said, Peter, I, yeah, we're going to, my brother and I are starting our own business. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a Coors family member. I've gone, there's one more spot for me, executive vice president. And, and that's amply held now with, by Bob Reckles. And he was my, the guy that hired me. I said, so there's no chance, and you're going to fire me someday anyway, so it doesn't matter. So, and, uh, and then we parted on good terms, and I left and went back to Kansas City. Well, this company of ours grew from zero to almost $120 million, well, not almost, $120 million in revenue in no time. It was just a home run. And wasn't as much fun as the beer business, but certainly a lot more profitable. I did the marketing and sales marketing. My brother did the financials, and, and it's a database company. He's better at data than I am, so he did that part of it. At one point, we had 450 contract speakers working for us, doing 20,000 seminars a year, and probably 120 different topics. Anytime, anything how to do something, we could, we could market that's how we got actually to Bighorn. Well, one thing happened, though, on the way is that that business was, was totally prevalent or dictated by uh, direct mail. Well, the, the not-for-profit mailers came in, and 50% of our mailing costs or our operating costs was mail. Now, that's high. Not-for-profit marketers came in, and they mail at a 40% discount because they're not-for-profit than what the for-profit people were. So we said, well, we, you know, after a year or two, we're not going to be able to sustain that. We can't do that. And we were at the height of our revenue, so I said, well, let's look around for a buyer. And so it had to be not-for-profit, so it had to have a mission of education, and it was going to be a school. We looked at several big eight at the time schools, a couple of big ten schools. Everybody was interested because it, it was a cash cow. Then a lawyer friend of ours said, you guys got to look at Rockers. So Rockers comes back into my life. I said, Rockers has got an enrollment of 5,000 kids. You know, it's starving for money. I don't know if they're going to make it. Uh, it's got a good reputation in town, for sure. Got a great business school, by the way. And he said, you got to sit down and talk to Tom Savage, who was the Jesuit priest president. We sat down and talked for Tom Savage, and we walked out of there, and we'd sold them to the company. And we did a 10-year earnout from 1992. We actually earned it out in, in nine years. 
how they paid for it. They didn't have the money, of course. We did a whatever cash flow we saved from the mailing in Deja from the 40% savings. We took 75% of it, and they took 25% of it. Well, it was millions and millions of dollars. When the earnout was done, which is 2001, they came to us. And one of the deals was that we kept managing because it was our money we were managing. And when they came to us and said, we want you to keep managing this. You take our place and we'll take the 75%. No risk anymore. And so that's a fair deal. And so we traded it. And then it really did well until 2008 when the recession hit. The uh, training industry went to hell because the first budget cut in companies is that. That was the end of, uh, well, it wasn't the end. I mean, it's still alive today, but it was written on the wind what it was going to be. But one of the great things about it, Marty, was financially it was really successful, you know, for rockers, for Mark and Gary and our families, and for the employees. They were partners all the way through. But one of the really great things from my standpoint is because I, it, was, it wasn't as much fun as marketing beer, but we were around the world's best business gurus because we sold their products, and they wrote some of our programs. And so we had these personal contacts with Tom Peters and Stephen Covey and, and, and all these things. But there was one guy who doesn't really get the publicity I think he deserves. He's still alive, uh, and he's located in uh, Santa Barbara. A guy by the name of Ishak Adesis. And Ishak Adesis has a concept, uh, he has two concepts that, that I particularly found in, entertaining but or interesting. Uh, one's a life cycle, and that businesses have a life cycle just like people do. And it's the job of the managers of the company to keep the company in the, in the, uh, in the appropriate life cycle uh, to keep it successful. You know, it starts out with courtship, and then you go to infancy. It's, like, it's just like a person growing. Then you go to a go-go place in it. Then you go to adolescence. Then you reach prime. Prime is where you, you want to stay someplace between prime and adolescence because you're, it's go-go and you're going. Then you go on to aristocracy. What's the next one? Is uh, It's death. It's, it's when things are just starting to back, out, back down. And then a bureaucracy, and, which is blaming everybody, then death. And this whole thing just made perfect sense to me. I don't know if it did anybody else, but it sure did to me. And we met with them a lot, and we didn't ever hire them as a consultant because it was pretty easy. That's just put business in definition for me. Coinciding with this lifestyle scheme of his was the management style scheme that he had, too. And that every company has different managers and they do different things. You have producers. Somebody has to produce the sales. I mean, that's just the way it is. Then you have administration. So you got personnel and all that kind of stuff, accounting. Then you have the entrepreneur. So that's the new product side. That's keeping the business in the prime position uh, because you're developing. You know, the worst thing in the world you could be as a company is in a declining industry because you just, you can't fight the industry. No, no singular company can. So you've got to, but you don't have to be then. You can develop new, new processes. Innovation. Innovation. It just goes back to it. And then you have the integration portion of this, which are the people who make it efficient. Because the, the entrepreneurs are never going to make it efficient, but they're going to make it work. But then somebody's got to come in and make it more efficient. And, and then the, the entrepreneurs start again and doing something else. And so it's all about, from that standpoint, it's all about managing change 
creating change and managing change. And sometimes I don't think creating change gets enough uh, volume, but creating change is important in a business because you got to move on from certain things. You got to let certain things go. And, and so we were able to do that in the seminar business until the, just the whole economy collapsed and then you're dead. Although we survived it, but we, we went down, geez, we went from 20,000 seminars to like 6,000 seminars. I mean, it was dramatic cuts. And through no fault of anybody's, that's what happened. And then they started giving away training. And it's hard to sell something that you can get for free. At that point in time, that was 08 was really a tough year, 09. And then at, at, the, at the level we were at, Mark and I decided... Well, I don't think, I'm not sure he decided, but we decided that the business was, wasn't big enough for both of us because we didn't have enough to do. And we didn't want to get in each other's way. We were great partners. I mean, I love my brother for that. We were, actually, we were, we were almost twins. We were born on the same day, but three years apart. And we think alike. We had two arguments in our life. One was about buying a jet, which I won. And the other one was about a grand piano on our house on Nidus. He won. And uh, we wanted one, he didn't. But they were decorating the house, so I kind of bailed out. Kept getting my salary, by the way, <laughs> but I just stepped aside. Later, the, he bailed out, and uh, they sold out to uh, another company. So that brings me to the question I know you want me to get to, and there's a long way to get here, is Bighorn. This has been Kay's in my living room for 24, going on 25 years. It is the best place in the world, in my opinion. Still is. There's just nothing like it, and it's only because of one man, that's Hubbard, of course. I first met D. Hubbard in a beer convention in Wichita, Kansas. He was a beer hostel there. I don't know if a lot of people know that. He had a course of tributeship. And D. Hubbard, and I, you know, see, he was, I was 23, he was 33. He was loud, boisterous, confident, directive, Without the money he has today, his personality never changed, but his money level changed a lot. And I don't know, we, did, we, we, we didn't become friends for sure. He was at Coors, I was at, at uh, Schlitz. It was ironic to run into him later. You know, it hurts me to talk about him because we became very close, as you well know. He was a wonderful business partner. Fair, first man I ever met in my life, although you would never know it by listening to him. Great listener. Great listener. He could listen three tables over. I don't know how he did it. It just happened. And he always knew what was going on. But the things I appreciate about, no, the best thing I appreciate about him was he was a great friend. Second thing I appreciate about him in business was that Hubbard was unique because he was both a visionary and he was a detail person. And that doesn't come together very often. He knew more about how this club was operating day to day than anybody in this club, any employee, any member. He knew it, and he saw it, and he was around it. For years, he was his own general manager because he didn't need a general manager. He just needed people to go do what he said, and he was almost always right. He had unbelievable vision, but he had this knack for change, this innovation. Every year for 20 years, until he became a little ill, we'd come back and there would be something new. There was, a better, there was a better given here. And the first time I met him, which is 19, or here, in 1996, Mark and I came to play in a golf tournament as, as guests of Jim Colbert. And it was called ACR Dosa. A being all red, C being Colbert. 
R being RD, and DOSA being Rio DOSA. It was first started in Rio DOSA. Mark and I walked in on the uh, tournament. It was a cash tournament. There was a betting tournament. This used to be a pretty large betting club. It's not anymore. We walked in on this. Uh, we were late, and we got we picked up our program at the front desk, and they were bidding on our team. Now, nobody in there knew us from Adam. Uh, there was mostly horse people, gambling people, because it was casino businesses, uh, business people, and Colbert's friends from Kansas. Uh, Allred didn't. Uh, he, I guess he had some people in there. I mean, he was just, he was a principal partner, so he was there. And they were bidding on, Mark and I were on the same team. We didn't know that until we got the, the program. And the first bid we heard was for 13500 And I tapped my brother on the shoulder. Now, listen, I'm used to paying $25,000 to join the best club in town. And these guys are bidding right then at 13000 I said, Mark, we're in the wrong place. This isn't for us. He said, shut up. <laughs> and we went on in because we knew it was going to cost us 20% apiece, you know, for the our share of it. It did. And we paid it. <laughs> and we're happy to do it. So we walked out, hardest golf course you ever played in your life, the mountains course. It was so unfriendly. And after the term was over, we didn't win anything. And the term was over, I said, Oh, Mark, let's get out of here. He said, I'm going to join. I said, Oh, crap. <laughs> so we did everything together, so I knew I was going to join. And so I think membership then was 75000 so we joined a piece. I mean, that was three times what we'd pay in Kansas City. It was obscene. I said, Mark, you know, we'd sold the company by then. Everything was great financially, but we just weren't used to it. But we did. But for all that time, Hubbard made this a better place to be every, every, every year. And he was fun to be with. His lifestyle, I couldn't keep up. I don't know if anybody could. His lifestyle, I don't know how his body took it. You know, I always say he was 84 when he died, 168 body-wise. I like this place. I think we're going through some change pains right now. I don't think they're cancerous or serious. They're just details, and we'll get out of it. And But it's still, I can't think of a better club to join in all the world than Bighorn. It's still that way. And I think it'll be that way for a long, long time. Couple of questions. School just wasn't your thing. Right. But you're a really inquisitive person. I am. You like to know how things work, how, how things happen, especially marketing, politics. Not mechanical of, uh, things, but, but everything else. That's yes. exactly right. I, I do. I do like that. And that's really what served you well, is that ability to be so inquisitive that you learned at every stage, you learned to be prepared for the next stage. Well, I always knew something else was coming. And I always knew I wasn't the smartest person in the room. If I kept my mouth shut, I'd learn something. And I don't always do that that well because I have opinions and I voice them too often, maybe, but uh, usually about politics, and you know that. I like to think that I'm a smart listener. The other thing is the Army. You touched on it, but it had a tremendous influence on your life. Oh, at every stage of my past life, it still has today. What do you tell? We don't have a draft anymore, not one way or the other. But this was a great growing and learning experience. There's really nothing out there right now that even comes close to that. I think America would be 
much better off if we had a at least a one year like Israel does, but maybe even a two year mandatory service. It doesn't have to be service. In fact, I think we have too much service. I think we spend too much money on it anymore. Nobody's attacking us. It's a great growth hormone for American people. I don't think we'd be near going through what we're going through right now if we had more discipline. It gives you an allegiance to a greater cause. You can't help it. You know, when you're serving in the service, you serve for America, but you really serve for your buddies. That's who you're there for. They're the ones who are going to protect you. And Nam, it's obviously, because that was an unpopular war over there. I mean, it's really unpopular back here, but it was unpopular over there uh, because they weren't doing the things to win it. And everybody, you're aware of that. And and the people take, taking the heat were the infantry people, the Marines out there, and, and Army infantry, because uh, they're the ones getting killed. But uh, I, I think that discipline and that allegiance and that, you know, when you're in the service, you learn to sacrifice, but you learn to serve. And serving's important for everybody. Well, and to be part of a team. It is part of a team. That's the ultimate team, because this truly is a matter of life and death in certain situations. You bet. Gary, who has had the greatest influence on your life? And that can be multiple people, obviously. Yeah, I've heard you ask that question before. I don't have one person. Uh, My father was a huge influence. Uh, My brother's been a huge influence. Hubbard, when my father died, now, Dee was 10 years older than I am, so he wasn't old enough to be my father, although you never know, do you? (laughs) Uh, Dee Hubbard had a huge influence on me. And I got to do things with him and go to places and travel and and go to the derbies and what have you. You I got to go to a lot of sporting events in the beer business because we sponsored everything. You know, I was at, I don't know, six or eight World Series and Super Bowls, too many to count, and, and all that was fun. But uh, uh, Hubbard was a great influence because he was fun. And you, and you did learn a lot, but, but that, when you were with him socially, that, you weren't there to learn. Maybe to observe, but uh, we, did, we did a lot of things, good things together. By the way, he got me into that ranch down in Rio Dosa. It only cost me $3 million extra. Uh, because he was going to build a golf course, which he never did. We built a beautiful ranch down there. It was gorgeous. And uh, we lived there 10 years, and it was still good. You know, that's when we sold that and then moved to Reno. And you used to ride a lot he during ride that a lot, time? Yeah, and he gave me a horse, and it was a beautiful quarter horse, expensive, well-bred, young, slow. <laughs> <laughs> That's and uh, that started, then I bought some other horses besides that. But we built this beautiful ranch, and we always had the 4th of July picnic at our house because we had property, and they set off fireworks. He was a firework nut. And uh, uh, so we did it down there, and, and uh, it was good fun. I mean, we had 10 years worth of fun. It was just expensive. A baseball story, just to go back. George Brett and you were pretty close. We were, Tell me about we were, how we that first. came about. Hall of Famer? When Dad was the executive VP business of the Royals, he initially negotiated both George Brett's and Frank White's contract. Now, they didn't have agents, and he didn't, they didn't pay my dad anything. But he, my dad was such a gentleman, and, and he, was, uh, he was like an ambassador. Uh, he just made sure it was fair for everybody. 
And because of that, when I walked around, actually, when I came back to the service, I was the same age as a lot of these ballplayers. I was Lou Pinella, Jim Rooker, some of these guys. And so I ran around with them. I always had a pretty good entrance. And then I'd left to go to the beer business, but so I moved. But so I always knew these guys. But George lived around the corner from us. George had a, when he was single, he had a real influence on Kansas City. Then he married a delightful woman, and he's, he's a good guy. Good family. His brothers had a few problems. They owned a minor league team in Portland. As did Kurt Russell's dad, by the way. What qualities do you look for in people that work with you? Let me start off by saying the most important thing I think a manager or leader can do is hire people smarter than them. And if you do that, they're either going to push you up or push you out. Well, if you're smart enough to be in the position you are, they're going to push you up usually. They're going to do the heavy lifting of, of helping you get to whatever the objective is. And I think that's, that's really, really an important asset. I look for, I look for honesty. I look for uh, uh, people who are uh, not afraid to speak out. You know, I, academics, surprisingly enough, don't play that great a role, but everybody that I've hired in the last 25 years has had degrees. Um, when I was in Milwaukee, which is a notoriously male business, I started, when I was, my first brand, which Schlitz won't look as brand director, I started hiring females, which was unheard of, because they, yeah, there's some downsides, but, but there's more upside than downsides. So because they work harder, they're more empathetic to people around them and what's going on. Uh, now, I'm talking generalities here. I don't want to cast any spells, but... But uh, we had, at one time, an almost, except for myself, an almost all-female brand and a male, black-oriented product. And it worked splendidly. But I like people that can take chances. I think if you're going to be innovative, you can't be afraid. You have to, you have to be able to extend yourself and not be scared that, that there would be retribution because, you know, failure is part of business. You've got to be allowed to fail. And I want people who are going to be themselves. And they, have to, they should be fun. Gary, to do the things that you've said about the qualities that you look for, you have to have a level of confidence as a leader that this isn't intimidating to you, that somebody's going to come in and take your job. or, or I mean, if you don't have that level of confidence, it's difficult to hire people that are quality and... and, and yeah. Marty, that's a great point because I always had, with very few exceptions, I always had bosses I knew supported me. And if I did my job and made my numbers, I knew they'd go to bat for me. And so in corporate business, which is entirely different than private business, but in corporate business, I always had that as, my, as a backstop. And they always did. Nobody ever failed me. Now, in private business, well, it's your business. So who's going to get you, right? But, but still, you make mistakes, and you have to, if you make onerous mistakes, and you have to live up to those, and you've got to face 250 employees walking in every day that you've made bad decisions. So now, you can make decisions that don't work, but that's not necessarily a bad decision. It just doesn't work. And uh, we, we just didn't have too much of that. But, but uh, yeah, you've got to, you've, you know, if you, if, you, if you hire a racehorse, and that's why you try to do you got to let him run, period. Good point. Um, I know that family's important to you, and you touched on it earlier, but 
but as far as people that have influenced you, I'm sure family has been a, a big influence on you too. And your uh, not only is your wife accomplished in many things, but your daughters are extremely uh, competent and successful. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? Oh, I'd love to. Uh, uh, let me start with Kay because we're going on 47 years of marriage now. And it all, hasn't always been, it's always been easy for me. It's not, not always been easy for her. She's, a, she's wonderful, and she's been behind me, even when it, she thought I was making the stupid decision to move from Denver to back to Kansas City. And, uh, uh, but she's smart. She's got an accounting degree. She's, she's got a music background. She was a classic pianist. And she was smart. But what she did, most importantly, besides being a good wife, well, she was a wonderful mother, and she taught our girls to be, they're independent, and they're tough, and they're, I don't, they're entrepreneurial, and I, I assume they got that from me because Kay's not a risk taker, but uh, they're very successful. Our oldest daughter, who I named Kristen, was born in 1977. She uh, flunked out of, no, she didn't flunk out of school. She left school to follow Fish, the band Fish. And uh, we didn't hear for her for six months. Came back. When she was eight years old, she was pronounced she was going to be a veterinarian. She came back, said, Dad, I'm ready to go back to school. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so she went back to school in uh, Olympia, Washington. Then she was admitted to vet school at Kansas State. And over the time, Kristen changed her name legally to Taylor. I said, why would you do that? I said, well, I feel like a tailor. I don't feel like a Christian. And that's when I knew I was sending them too much money because she, she paid for the legal fees to do it. She, went, she had a practice in, uh, across the bridge and uh, across the Golden Gate Bridge in uh, California and that she'd bought independently, no money from me, and did well for five years, got bored, went back to school at Cal Berkeley, got her MBA, and I did pay for that again. And then she said, well, I'm off to New York, and I'm going to build a, a concierge veterinary service. Well, she figured out once she got it was a good idea, but once she got there, and that she could only see one patient at a time, and that, so that's pretty inefficient. So she built a hospital in Brooklyn, and she's just going gangbusters. And I haven't, I haven't put it, I bought it, I have a mortgage put it, but, uh, on her place, but I haven't put any money in her business. She's done it all by herself. So, and she's smart. She's smart as a whip. And she's tough. She's uh, got a granddaughter. We haven't seen him in a year and a half, although we're going to see him in a couple weeks. Uh, they're coming out here. Her significant other is a guy by the name of John. He's a lieutenant on the New York City Police Department. He's 6'8", rode on the American rowing team, Olympics, in Atlanta. The uh, year before that, won, they won the World Cup in Atlanta. They, didn't, they came in third, I think. I think they got the uh, third place. And he's a super guy, great father, 6'8", she's 6'2", and Quinn, who's our granddaughter, I'm negotiating right now with the University of Connecticut. <laughs> she's going to be tall. Absolutely. Yeah, but, and they're good. And she's, she's just been a great business person. Katie is our youngest daughter. She got a scholarship to Loyola Marymount in, in L.A., and... She's had a little tragedy in her life. She met a guy in college, and they were in love, and went together for 10 years. We're getting ready to get married a week before uh, 
the wedding, he was on an elliptical machine and died. He was 31 years old. He had a heart condition nobody knew about. Well, it just sent her bonkers. She's, she, Kristen's the toughie. Katie's very sensitive. They're going to listen to this, and so I'm going to be careful here. But uh, she pulled herself out, had help uh, from all of us, of course, but she did it on her own and uh, went back to school, uh, got her Ph.D. and MBA at uh, Loma Linda, and she's got a Ph.D. in, in applied clinical psychology, and her her emphasis is, is uh, I don't know the words, on the brain. And she's got a business in Pasadena, and she's got eight therapists working for her, all PhD, well, not all PhDs, some of them masters. And they haven't missed a beat since the whole pandemic. Of course, the business on the pandemic has, has created a lot of business. And but she and her husband, Nas, Nas works for Netflix, and he's born in India. His parents are both doctors and still in Mumbai. And he's got two master's degrees from uh, Southern Cal and swears he's not Indian. And uh, <laughs> he's a bright kid. Couldn't ask for a better son-in-law. So um, I've been very lucky there, too. Um, two last questions. What is or was your management philosophy? Changed. It used to be when I first got into management. Now, this is going back to the club level you know, back in the Army. It was pretty autocratic, because the Army's pretty autocratic. Then I kind of observed that, you know, it doesn't really get that much done, but they didn't like me that much. So uh, my my management philosophy, I would, I don't know if there's a definition to anybody's, but I would call it mentoring. Because if I'm going to hire good people, I'm, I'm going to trust them and let them go. And so I've got to be there to mentor them, not to do their business for them. I don't want any part of that. And so I, I'd say I'm a good mentor, and I think people have reinforced that back or played it back to me over the years. That no, no, I'm tough, and I was tough on objectives, but I'm not tough on people. Interesting. And I, th I agree. I think that you, your job as a leader is to get the most out of people, take their strengths yeah. and, and improve on them. Last question, Gary. What advice would you give the 20-year-old Gary Truitt today? Hmm. I like Frank Jewell's answer to that in that podcast because Frank was right on so many things that I would agree with. Um, I would say be yourself. Be early. Always. Prepare yourself. Don't take anything for granted. And always carry a clipboard around like you're, at, you're ready for business. Okay. Um, Gary, I know that at first, as you mentioned at the outset, you weren't uh, uh, excited, let's say, about doing this. Well, I was, I was more, mostly scared. <laughs> but, I, but I will tell you, I've really enjoyed this. I hope it's been a good experience for you. And... Uh, Again, these are stories, especially your business life and the twists and turns that you've taken during that life. People don't go in a direct line. Mm -mm. And so they need to understand that they need to be always preparing themselves for the next step. Mark, I've enjoyed this more than I thought I would, for sure. It, it made me reflect, as I mentioned earlier, I think when I started. 
And, you know, I've been so lucky. I haven't had, I've had some personal tragedies, not necessarily affecting me, but my family around me. And what we've overcome them. Uh, but it's, it's, I've been lucky. And, and when I did this, it reminded me how lucky I've been. And I appreciate that. So I, 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 I wish we could do it some more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and that, leave, let's leave that open. Because you certainly, life's not over. No. Um, Gary, thanks again. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Marty. Thank you. It was fun. I hope you enjoyed the stories Gary shared about hard work and success. That would be interesting, informative to those of us that have shared some of the same experiences. Those of us that have known Gary for many years, but now know him even more. We also once again want to thank Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers, AT&T, and Back Nine Greens, whose support allows us to bring these great stories to you. We look forward to being back with you soon with more interesting people and their extraordinary stories on the next Bighorn podcast. <laughs>